0: There were a couple lessons learned along the way um, and there are a couple foundational things that make our program different so the reason that we see such strong clinical and financial impact are because of a couple things that really set us apart i think from maybe other versions of this that are being done i think the fact that we do provide food not just for the patient but for the entire family is a really important piece i also think that the amount of food that we provide, so 10 meals a week, every week, is really important as Mm -hmm. well. You know, if people don't have that in place or, or a significant amount of food provision in place, you likely won't see the clinical impact that we're seeing. So there has to be a real commitment to the food is medicine concept and making sure that the provision of food matches that.
1: That was Allison Hess, VP of Health for the Steele Institute for Innovation at Geisinger Health System. She's joining us today to talk about Geisinger's Fresh Food Pharmacy, a program that provides food-insecure patients with poorly controlled diabetes access to fresh, healthy foods as part of a comprehensive diabetes care plan. And I'm Audrey Provenzano, host of Review of Systems from the Harvard Center of Primary Care. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
0: you for having me.
1: So a major theme we're seeing in healthcare across the U.S. is different organizations wrestling with how to address social determinants of health. Kaiser is doing some really interesting work investing in housing. In Massachusetts here, you know, all of our participants in the Medicaid ACO are expected to be screening patients for social determinants. Um, So at Geisinger, in one of your programs looking at this, you decided to focus on food insecurity among your diabetic patients. Tell us about how you decided to focus your intervention here and um, when there really is so much need.
0: Yeah, so, you know, like other healthcare organizations, we were all looking in the space of social determinants and really trying to pinpoint an area that was specifically impacting our patients. And safe to say um, we have a couple different pilots going on in transportation and some other areas because it was really hard to narrow that focus as we see the impact. Um, to be widespread across our patient population and our communities. But what we noticed was with our diabetes patients, despite the fact that we have heavily invested in clinical resources and we have great diabetes programs um, for our patients and a lot of education and clinical services available at the primary care sites, we still weren't seeing the national trend or even within our population the trend for diabetes really moving in the direction that we wanted to. And so we were looking at areas where we could impact our diabetes population at the same time that we were looking at social determinant data and really understanding the impact that that was having. And we started to find this correlation between diabetes and food insecurity. And when we started to really look into the literature, we recognized that there is a bi directional relationship between food insecurity and type two diabetes. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we decided to do was really heat map across our coverage area where we had a high prevalence of type two diabetes and where we had with the state data a high prevalence of food insecurity, and find those specific geographies where we thought we could have a big impact if we did something fundamentally different with how we delivered care to those patients. Hmm.
1: So you focused on food insecure patients with poorly controlled diabetes, which you defined as an A1C of eight or higher. Once patients are enrolled, how does it work? And and what are patients given? Is it like vouchers um, for a supermarket or is it an actual box of food?
0: So we actually up a fresh food pharmacy brick and mortar fresh food hmm. pharmacy on one of our hospital campuses so it's about a 2,000 square foot facility we're opening two more um, one that we're opening in the Scranton area will be over 5,000 square feet hmm. but it's really set up as um, kind of a self-serve model so we have coolers we have freezers um, we have a food storage area and our patients can come in and they can collect the food that they need, similar to how they would do it in a grocery store. Hmm. Additionally, within that facility, we have conference room, we have clinician offices, um, we have a large registration area that has additional education, we have recipes available for our participants when they come in, so they can select the food options um, that they want that go along with those recipes. So we are a choice pantry, which means we do try and have choices every week for our patients when they come in and they can go through and self-select based on what they're interested in. But all of the food within our fresh food pharmacy is really in the, fr- the fruit and vegetable category. We have lean meats, whole grains, proteins. We have a lot of the staples, oatmeal, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And we provide the food for 10 meals a week for the patient and their entire household.
1: Wow! Tell us about that choice. That's, um, you know, really it's it's wonderful, but it also I imagine really dramatically increases the cost of the program.
0: Um, not necessarily. Uh, we work very closely with the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank. They're our food distribution partner. They're a phenomenal partner, and they do a great job as making sure that we're supplied with options for our patients who are coming through the program. I think choice is important because we really want to empower our patients as they're a part of this process. And there's a lot of education that goes behind this. So they're learning how to prepare different types of foods that maybe they're not familiar with. They're learning how to utilize um, different recipes and do things um, pretty creatively. And we also want them to make good choices when they have to supplement on their own outside of what they receive from our pantry, so when they go into the grocery store. So we want to have those choices so that they get more exposure, have more variety, and it actually doesn't have a negative impact on the cost, but it's, it's a very positive thing for the patients coming through. As you can imagine, yeah. if we provided the same food every week, week over week, we would probably see a decrease in compliance.
1: Right. And I feel like that extends the reach of the program, too, if... Family members are all eating the same food and preparing the same foods, kind of learning healthier habits, um, maybe than they than they had in the past, and maybe reducing the risk of other family members developing type two diabetes or other diet-related chronic disease. Um, And I think eating is such a you know it's obviously such a social thing too. Um, Having the whole family be able to eat the same thing is important. There's an organization in Massachusetts called Community Servings that has a very similar philosophy they have they prepare these really wonderful medically tailored meals and they're also for the whole family, not just for the patient who is enrolled in the program.
0: Yeah, we made a decision early on in this process that it was really important to make sure that we were providing to the entire family for a couple reasons. The first is that we knew that this was likely an impoverished population, and so the concern was if we only distributed enough food for the patient, that likely that patient would probably redistribute within their own household anyway. Right, right, um, right, So they likely wouldn't be consuming all of the food themselves. The second piece that was equally as important, if not more, was that this program was really about standing up the health of a community, and that really meant standing up the health of a household as well, and so... We're not, while the patient is at the center and we want to make sure that we're very focused on the patient, there's a broader mission and focus with this program to really help stand up communities. And the more we can do with those households and other generations that could benefit from this program, the better off we'll be.
1: Right. So you mentioned that it's really part of a comprehensive program. There are other services that patients can take advantage of. Can you talk about that a little
0: bit? Yeah, absolutely. When people enroll in the program, they get a prescription. The prescription is what gives them access to the food, which is a really important pillar of the program. But equally important is the education and the other services that we provide. So in addition to the food provision, we also provide evidence-based self-management programs Hmm. that we do require the participants to attend and participate in. We receive very positive feedback from those classes. They're over a couple weeks. Um, They're a couple hours, a couple times. um, And they really build relationships with other individuals who are trying to navigate through their conditions and how to um, deal with some of the other challenges that they face. And it really provides a nice network for them. Additionally, we found that as people went through those programs and started goal setting and were feeling empowered, that they wanted to do more with um, being active in their health. So a byproduct of this program, in addition to the clinical outcomes, is that we're seeing patients really want to do goal setting and focus on their health, and they're feeling empowered to do that and so because of that they're asking for classes like tobacco cessation, mm-hmm. cooking classes, grocery tours. They want reunion classes from their self-management programs, <laughs> exercise programs. So what's really neat is that the the participants who are going through this program are actually the ones helping design the additional education. We're we're relying on feedback from them based on what they think they want to focus on and then we're trying to supplement those programs um, in addition to the education. And the other piece is the clinical intervention that they get with a registered dietitian, the registered nurse, we have a pharmacist, a health coach, and a community health assistant. The community health assistant was something that we added later in the program once we identified that there were often other things that We needed to be able to solve for, including transportation Mm. and, um, you know, homelessness and some other things that that presented um, as part of this program. So the the community health assistant does a lot of that, makes sure that um, the participants are applying for their SNAP benefits, they're taking advantage of all the benefits that they have available, and and closing some of those gaps as well.
1: Sure. So you estimate the cost of the program is about $3,500 per patient per year. And it's funded, it sounds like, with a combination of grants. Direct funding from Geisinger, the company itself, and private donations, as well as it sounds like some really important community partners. Um, tell us a little bit about how you know how you fund that and how you're looking to make it sustainable.
0: Yeah, so the the cost of the program it, it has been really done to date, as you mentioned, um, primarily through philanthropy um, and in kind. From Geisinger. We've opened up this program to anybody in the community. They do not necessarily have to have an affiliation with Geisinger, either as a patient or a health plan member. But we do have, because of the geography, a portion of the population who um, does have Geisinger insurance and is also a Geisinger patient. And so what that's allowed us to do is really drill down into the clinical data to understand the impact. And what we can do from that is we can tie that clinical impact directly to published literature that shows, with every one point reduction in hemoglobin A1c, there's anywhere from eight to twelve thousand dollars in cost savings annually for a patient. In our program, we're seeing about a two point reduction in hemoglobin A1c on average. Um, so if you take that already published literature and apply it, um, that's you know potentially twenty four thousand dollars per patient per year. So the ROI on the program, from that perspective, we're really seeing, um, and in addition to the drop in A1C, we're also seeing significantly decreased uh, LDL cholesterols. We're seeing Mm -hmm. decreased weight. We're seeing decreased blood pressure. And we're seeing more people get their preventive care done. So we have a much Mm -hmm. higher compliance rate for our patients getting their mammograms or diabetic eye exams and, and all the other things that, that they should be doing as well. Right. And so there's, there's a, a measurable ROI on this particular program. We're starting to dig into more of the actual data and, and peek under the covers, not just using the published data, but also looking very closely at our data to see what we're seeing. Anecdotally, we're seeing higher savings than what the Published data shows, but mm-hmm. we need to look at that across the board, across all patients, take out all variables. So, those are some of the things that we're looking at right now. And I think it's important to also note that in addition to just the medical cost savings, we're measuring reduction in um, some other key factors like ER and sure. admissions yeah. and trying to measure the impact there.
1: Right. Yeah, I can imagine. If I were a PCP for one of these patients and they came back after a couple of months and their A1C control was so much better, we could spend most of the visit talking about their colonoscopy that we had been neglecting or all the other things that patients need. But I have to say those those effects are really impressive. I I I guess I wouldn't have expected it to be so dramatic in such a short period of time. I mean, it should be said, I guess this is a probably pretty motivated subset of the patients since they're attending some signed up to attend some required kind of self-management classes and you know there's probably some special things about these patients but still really impressive findings.
0: Yeah to be honest we didn't expect it either so um, we we anticipated because of what the literature stated Mm -hmm. um, with all the research that we did going into it, we spent extensive time in the planning for this particular program we were confident that we were going to see a positive impact, but I don't think any of us were really prepared to see what the the outcomes and the data is showing us to date.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so it really reinforced what we had already known, is that if you have diabetes, and every time you go into your physician, or whether you have a registered dietitian available, or you know you have the best education, if you can't provide the food for yourself that's appropriate for a diet responsive condition, all of that education and all of that support really isn't gonna change whether or not your hemoglobin A1C is running where it's supposed to be. Hmm. And so that provision of food is so important to try and help get that diabetes measure under control. And I think what we hear from patients um, consistently that go through this program is that they were frustrated, they'd given up, they were tired of going back to their doctor and hearing that they needed to do all this stuff, but they really didn't have the means um, to do what they needed to or they didn't have the additional education that they needed to. and many of them, were really non-compliant with even seeing their physician yeah now they can't wait to go back because they're so excited to show their pcp their numbers Mm -hmm. Um, when you have people who are walking around with a hemoglobin a1c of 15 or 16 they don't feel well they don't feel good Um, they're in and out of the hospital they're in and out of the er and so when you get that to a controlled state and they're feeling good and they're losing weight and they're lowering their ldl and all these other things are happening it's amazing the transition that they have not just clinically but even just emotionally how Mm -hmm. they feel about themselves and um they're just really empowered to continue to focus on their health and it, it kind of gives them this newfound hope yeah
1: Tell us a little bit about your patient, Rita, who participated in the program.
0: Yeah, so Rita, you know, we have a couple different patients in the program who have really been with us from the start of the program. Rita was one of the first six pilot patients that we started with. Um, she really, when she came into the program, we had tried within other veins of the um, clinical care team, we had tried to engage her in health management programs and some other programs to help her with her diabetes because um, it was so uncontrolled. And she really just said, I don't have time for this. I really don't want to participate. She really didn't want to engage. She was was very disengaged. She had a lot going on um, in her personal life. She was caring for her husband. She also was recently um, appointed guardianship for her grandchildren. And so she was trying to adjust um, to take care of everybody and so she wasn't really focused on taking care of herself Mm. but her health uh, was continuing to deteriorate and her diabetes was continuing to worsen and so with quite a bit of prodding uh, one of our nurses reached out and really encouraged her strongly encouraged her to participate in this program and she came in somewhat begrudgingly she (laughs) wasn't really sure it was going to work she thought it was just um she didn't have time to do this, and, uh, but when we started explaining the program and we talked about being able to provide food for her household, and that was certainly an area that she was struggling with, um, that kind of got her attention. And she just really um, she just thrived from there. Once she became committed to the program, once she really saw what it was doing for her own personal health, um, she, lost, uh, she lost weight, she significantly lowered her LDL, she significantly lowered her triglycerides, um, her e- hemoglobin A1C dropped, um, and she went from being a person who was really in that category of not feeling well every day because of her diabetes, To somebody who is one of our biggest advocates for the program Hmm. she spends her time encouraging others to participate Uh, she's incredibly supportive if people are struggling and um, she's always willing to share her story and talk about her journey and how this program really changed her life
1: yeah lastly what what are your tips for folks who are listening who may want to start a similar program in their clinic or community. It sounds like you started really small, just six patients at first, and you've talked about your community partner with the food bank. And you know, what what advice would you have for people if they wanted to start a similar program?
0: I think there were a couple lessons learned along the way. Um, and there are a couple foundational things that make our program different. So the reason that we see such strong clinical and financial impact are because of a couple things that really set us apart, I think, from maybe other versions of this that are being done. I think the fact that we do provide food not just for the patient but for the entire family is a really important piece. I also think that the amount of food that we provide, so 10 meals a week every week, is really important as well. You know, if people don't have that in place or or a significant amount of food provision in place, you likely won't see the clinical impact that we're seeing. So there has to be a real commitment to the food is medicine concept and making sure that the provision of food matches that. So that's one piece of it. The second piece is really the evidence-based education programming that I talked about, the self-management programs that we do. We looked at the data to see what outcomes we had if we just provided the food and we saw about half of the success as we did when we added the food plus the education. The Mm. education is a critical piece of it. Um, You'll still see some impact with food alone but the food plus the education is much more powerful and so that's another really key piece and then I think the last piece that um, I think is important is that you really need to understand what you're going to measure and make sure that you have um, you, can, you have access to kind of the clinical data, um, the baseline data, and you're really measuring throughout that process. Because we made sure that when we went down this journey, that we knew what we were going to measure and what we wanted to look at. And that's why we're able to demonstrate some of these outcomes that have gotten people's attention because right. we made the analysis a really important piece of what we're doing. Sure. Great. Allison,
1: thank you so much for your time. Yeah, absolutely. You've been listening to Review of Systems, a podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, and click on OS Podcast along the top to subscribe and you can find links there to more information about Geisinger's Fresh Food Pharmacy program. This week, we want to extend a huge thanks to Lisa Rotenstein and CareZooming, an organization dedicated to sharing best practices and strategies to implement evidence-based programs in primary care settings. Geisinger's Fresh Food Pharmacy was featured in CareZooming's website and emails. You can check out their website at carezooming.com. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues on social media. You can find me at Audrey MDMPH and our show at ROS Podcast on Twitter. You can tweet us feedback and suggestions, or you can email me at contact at rospod.org. Thanks for listening.